0: Thank
1: you
2: Welcome back, everybody, to a new episode of Kicking with Keeler here on Full Press Radio, episode number 108. My birthday is actually 10-8, so that makes it for an interesting uh, three numbers. I'm your host, Ricky Keeler. Thanks for kicking it with me here on a Thursday afternoon. We've got a lot to get into over the next hour plus. We're going to, of course, dive into week eight in the NFL beginning tonight, the Packers and the Cardinals, a game that you wish both teams were at full strength, but I think it should be still a really entertaining thursday night football game we'll dive into that we'll lead off with the Bengals being the top team in the afc yeah i can't believe i just said that but we're gonna dive into that a little bit more uh look back at college football the week that was some top teams getting close calls some weird games Some upsets first two games of the world series in the books braves and astros tied a game of peace what does it all really mean and we'll end up with the little NBA. And we'll talk about the hockey as well. Um, and especially the disturbing news out of Chicago this week. Uh, and applauding Kyle Beach for speaking out um, on the sexual assault that happened to him. Now, I'll give out the disclaimer. Uh, I am working on hopefully getting a guest for Saturday's show that covers the Blackhawks to talk about it a little bit more. Uh, especially someone who's around... The team a little bit more. Who is read right into? I've started to read the document, uh, but I want to. We'll dive. We'll talk about a little bit and what it might mean. But we'll do a little bit more hopefully on Saturday show. So I wanted to mention that right up, right out of the gate. Want to remind you, you can follow me on Twitter at ricnader five five five. It's at r a c k letter i nader like a terminator in three fives. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at fpno square coverage and at full press radio. Be sure to uh, download the podcast on iTunes or your podcast. Just search Kickin' with keyword Chances are you will find it. And I want to hear from you. Tell me what you like, what you don't like. Please leave a rating. You can email me, rickjkeelor at gmail.com. Also, be sure to download the Full Press Coverage app on your iOS or Android device. It is free. All of our articles, podcasts, live shows are there. Also, be sure to check that out today. We greatly appreciate it. So again, we're leading off with the Bengals. And if the season ended today, and it's weird to start saying that, but you can start getting to that point because we're about almost halfway through the NFL season. The Cincinnati Bengals would have the number one seed in the AFC. The road to Los Angeles would go through Cincinnati. Last time you said that, Ken Anderson was probably quarterback. But hey. That's the fun part of the season. It's been weird, and look, I was wrong. The Bengals, they proved me wrong two weeks ago when they avoided that track game with Arizona, and I thought the Ravens had finally found it. They were another team that I was wrong on over the last six weeks. Uh, after losing to Vegas, they'd won five in a row. They looked like they were clicking again, and the Bengals just came in and punched them in the mouth. Joe Mixon didn't really have as many carries, 12 carries, 59 yards, but he did have the 21-yard touchdown in the fourth quarter. is like the knockout punch. And this season has been all about a couple of things for the Bengals. Joe Burrow, looked like an MVP candidate, 418, 416 yards, three touchdowns, one interception, including the 82-yard touchdown of Jamar Chase at the end of the third quarter that kind of broke the Ravens' back. Chase has been everything the Bengals could have asked for because if you go back to the draft – Everybody thought the Bengals, well, some people thought, I should say, the Bengals made a mistake by not drafting an offensive lineman to protect Burrow and instead going with a wide receiver. But you take Joe Burrow's teammate from college who he already has a chemistry with, and Chase isn't dropping balls like he did in the preseason. He's catching everything. Eight catches, 201 yards, and a touchdown. He's got 754 yards receiving already this season. He has had at least six catches in three of the last five games. And he has four touchdowns in the last five games. And also, if you go the last three weeks, he has caught at least a 50-yard pass or more in three straight games. I mean, that's the impact he has. And now when you've got a guy like Chase, it takes some of the pressure off of T. Higgins. It takes some of the pressure off of Tyler Boyd. C.J. Uzama gets open in the middle of the field, and he gets two touchdowns. This Bengals' offense, now that Burrow's got protection, he's fully recovered from his injury from a year ago, it's hard to stop this team. And I think one of the things you have to look at, especially this season, the weirdness of the NFL where the Chiefs aren't any good, you got teams like the Cardinals who were undefeated. Right now, your top two seeds in the AFC would be Cincinnati and Las Vegas. We kind of have to... Ignore the history of the team itself and just focus on the team now. And if you take the word Bengals away, you would say this is a Super Bowl contending team. I think the Bengals might be there now because it's hard to ignore going into Baltimore and outscoring them 28 to 7 in the second half. A team that Lamar Jackson and the Ravens have dominated in the past. And you look at their two losses one is to Chicago by three points on the road, and the other one was an overtime to the Packers, where a couple missed or made field goals here or there, and Cincinnati could easily have won that game against a really good team in the NFC. Now, the Bengals' schedule does get a little bit tougher after this week. They do get to play the Jets and Mike White, which they should win, but I think now you're looking at that November 21st game at Vegas. I mean, Bengals-Raiders all of a sudden becomes a marquee game. It does. They get Denver at the end of the year. They get the Niners, who knows what their quarterback situation. Chargers at home, Ravens at home, Chiefs at home at Cleveland. I mean, they have five of their last seven games at home. So the Bengals, realistically, as long as they take, advantage, take care of their business in the North, they've already beaten Pittsburgh. They've already beaten Baltimore. They get Cleveland next week at home. They get Pittsburgh at the end of November at home. And then they get Baltimore at home on the 26th of December. So they have won two road games in the division. That helps them already. But also the key to the Bengals is their defense. They're fifth in the league in points against, 18.3 points per game. And the key for Cincinnati and why they're successful, I think, defensively, is their secondary. When you look at guys like Jesse Bates, who's done a really good job getting that, uh, breaking up passes. Von Bell has done a good job as well. Five tackles for loss in seven games. Uh, Logan Wilson with four interceptions as a linebacker. I mean, he's done a really nice job. Uh, Trey Hendrickson in terms of sacks, six and a half on the season. Sam Hubbard with four sacks. This is a Bengals defense that has three players with three or more sacks. They're getting after the quarterback. They're making plays. And you throw the offensive line protecting Burrow. This is this looks like a complete team so far. And you can make the case in the AFC that Buffalo is the best team. You can make the case that Cincinnati can make the case for Vegas. You can make the case for Tennessee, especially for beating Buffalo and Kansas City the last two weeks in convincing fashion, at least last week against the Chiefs. But in a wide-open AFC, why can't Cincinnati win win the conference this year? So to me, when you look back to Week 7, that's my biggest standout performance of the week. In terms of other games that I liked... Obviously, Tennessee beating Kansas City. I don't know what to make of the Chiefs anymore. Because Patrick Mahomes is trying to do too much. Took a big hit at the end of the game. Had the interception. Had a fumble. You're not seeing Travis Kelsey get any end zone targets. You're not really seeing much of Tyreek Hill in these games. The running game just can't get going. They can't stop the pass. Ryan Tannehill was efficient as ever in the first half. Derrick Henry was running all over them and throwing touchdowns in the goal line. Kansas City probably still going to make the playoffs, but you look at that schedule in the second half of the season, it is brutal for Kansas City if they don't figure it out. So they are in in a identity crisis. Tennessee, I think, has found it. Tom Brady, of course, gets his 600th touchdown pass to Mike Evans, and I thought about that this week a little bit. What would I ask for if I got that ball? Because I'm a big Tom Brady fan. And I don't blame the fan look for just wanting to give it back, and and I— Like if you want to do that and you aren't out to get every month dollar possible, that's cool too. I would ask for probably a signed ball. If you take the COVID angle out of it, maybe get a picture with the ball with Tom Brady, and then season tickets for like the next ten years. I think, which I think the fan got season tickets for this rest of this year and next year. Which I think is still the the, Tom Brady treated that fan very well, Uh, and a lot of that. He realized, look, I can't take this ball and not really give him anything for it. So, uh, And you don't blame Mike Evans. Look, he probably forgot that that was touchdown number 600. But Tampa Bay was dominant in that football game. I liked what the Colts did in San Francisco. Niners are a mess at quarterback right now. Garoppolo's been terrible. They're hoping that Lance can get back healthy. Maybe he'll get to play some snaps. But you look at the Colts. They're throwing Carson Wentz in the rain, 150 yards and a couple touchdowns. Not turn the football over. Jonathan Taylor's running for over 100 yards. We told you, don't sleep on the Colts despite that bad record. They're 3-4 now. And a big game this week with Tennessee where they could still control their destiny in the AFC South if they get a win. There wasn't a lot of great games this week, though. Six games was like by over 20 points. Not exactly what you want. I mean, the Packers, that game could have been a lot closer with Washington if Washington actually knew how to score in the, in the red zone. Um, Arizona blew out Houston. I was impressed by the Lions keeping that game close in L.A. with the Rams. But again, nothing really flashy this week in the NFL. So before we get to the Thursday night game, we got to talk about the news this week. And there's some interesting things this week, especially with the NFL. And you, the one of the things that we talk about is basically what's going on at the owners' meetings this week. And involving... Still, the whole controversy involving the Washington Football investi- Team investigation, and I don't blame Mark Davis, the Raiders owner, for saying, "Look, there should be a full written report that's released." Because you saw the report; I think it was by, I think it was ESPN or Sports Illustrated, one of the two. And Davis is basically blaming Goodell, saying. Okay, well, why do I have to, why did I not know about these letters? If you knew about them in June, why did I find the, the emails in June? Why did I wait till October to find them out? It doesn't make sense. And, and Mark Davis has a point. Why is it taking that long for the NFL to reveal that kind of thing and putting the, the team in a bad position? Why is the NFL willing to basically not release emails, especially now that Congress is getting involved, and not having a full written report on the investigation itself? Why does it look like that Dan Snyder, who did get a fine, team got a $10 million fine, Daniel Snyder is not involved in day-to-day operations anymore, but it just still, something feels weird about the entire situation. It just feels like the NFL... Is hiding something. That they don't want out. And people are going to keep digging. If there's more in those emails. And why the NFL is so hesitant to release the full written findings of the report. They are going to keep digging. And they will probably find it. Reporters are good at that. They will find it. And you wonder when they do. If they do what damage it could do to the NFL. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. But you got that controversy, you got the controversy with Dan Kroenke, where what's going on with the Rams is that Kroenke was supposed to pay the legal fees for when the Rams moved. And that hasn't happened. So, people are not happy with him. you have the situation with Deshaun Watson in which trade deadline is Tuesday. Don't know what's going on with that. Don't know what the NFL is going to do. Does he play when he gets traded? If he gets traded, if he goes to the Dolphins? Cuz it's not the Port West Carolina's out, which I I get why David Tepper would be out, but you look at what's going on with Sam Donner right now and Carolina could use an upgrade. If Deshaun Watson was traded, is he eligible to play? Right now, it seems like he is. Everything just seems a mess with the NFL right now. And then, look, they're the NFL. They're the Shields. Everybody watches the games. We've always talked about it. How much damage could they take before that stops? I don't think they want to find out. Just something we're still going to monitor over the next weeks and months and there's always seems to be something new on these stories every day. It's not going away anytime soon. Tonight's game, Packers-Cardinals, Thursday Night Football, Fox and NFL Network. 6-1 and one Packers at the 7-0 Cardinals. Arizona fared by 6.5. You look at this game and you wish the Packers were healthier. Uh, Devontae Adams and Alan Lazard are on the COVID-19 list at wide receiver. They're out. Marquez valdez Scantling dealing with an injury, he's likely out. So the Packers are out, three wide receivers. They still have Equiminius St. Brown. They still have Randall Cobb, who Aaron Rodgers is very familiar with. And they still have Robert Tanyan. I'm sure they could probably use a mixture of Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon both in the run game and the passing game. And it's still Aaron Rodgers. You can't rule him out in in, in this kind of situation. He's having a good season. I think it's like 17 total touchdowns, three interceptions. He's played extremely well since that first game against the Saints. Now, for the Cardinals, no J.J. Watt after the season of the shoulder injury. So that's going to hurt their defense. DeAndre Hopkins is banged up, but I think because this game is so huge in terms of NFC seeding, in terms of national game, Hopkins is going to try to play. You wonder how healthy he actually is. So that's going to put a lot on A.J. Green, Christian Kirk. Maybe you get more of the ground game with Edmonds and James Conner. Or we get Kyler Murray running the ball a little bit more as opposed to being the pocket passer, which I actually like this year that Kyler Murray has kind of abandoned being a running back and not relied on his legs so much to be an effective quarterback. He's able to do both, but put more emphasis, getting the ball downfield. So I like how Kyler has evolved as a quarterback. I still think Tampa is the favorite in the NFC because they're the defending champions, they only have one loss to the Rams. I know Tampa's defense is a mess, but as long as Tom Brady's playing as well as he is, how could you not say they're the favorite? But whoever wins tonight makes the case for worst number two in the NFC. Especially if the Packers, without three wide receivers, can go on the road short week. Their defensive coordinator is out due to COVID protocols, and they win this game? That says a lot about what Green Bay can be. It would also be their seventh win in a row since that debacle against New Orleans Week 1. So a lot on the line tonight. I'm going to go with the Cardinals. As much as I think Aaron Rodgers will have a good game, I think the the cards are kind of stacked against the Packers. I think Kyler Murray is going to make enough plays, both via the arm and with his legs. I I think they'll cover, but barely. I think this is a 27-20 kind of game. I think Arizona gets the win. Um, I just think Green Bay is going to struggle a little bit offensively, but I think they'll figure it out as the game goes along. And Aaron Rodgers is going to make a play or two that you go, hey, it's Aaron Rodgers, what are you going to do? But Arizona's balance is going to be enough to win this game, which would put them 8-0. And you look at the Cardinals' schedule, if they do win tonight, they only have a couple more tests on their schedule if you talk about an undefeated record. They have at San Francisco, which you would think is a win. Carolina home's a win. At Seattle, again, who knows how healthy Russell Wilson is. Then a bye at Chicago. The Ram game on the 13th and Monday night's interesting. The Colt game on Christmas is interesting because you don't know what Indy will be then. And then they end they, week 17, they're at Dallas. So there are tough games still in Arizona's schedule after tonight, but a win tonight, and now you can talk about, it. you could put 17 0 at least in the conversation for the Cardinals. I don't think they'll get there but at least as a conversation starter if they win today. And I do do think they will. So we'll take our first break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little college football. A little bit of tough test for Cincinnati and Oklahoma this week. What does it mean? Did we buy into it that much? And how much should the committee look into that? Remember, the committee's first rankings are on Tuesday. So we're going to get to start talking about playoff rankings pretty soon as well. And we'll talk about Are nine overtimes the right way to do it in college football? We'll talk about that next coming up on Kicking with Keyword here on Full Press Radio.
1: With Lucky Land slots,
2: you can get lucky
1: just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.
1: In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Getting set to talk a little college football here on Kicking It With Keeler. And I think what this one thing you took away from last week's action is it's clear Georgia is the number one team in the country. They've got the defense, the running game. Right now, it's tough to see them losing at all, at least before the SEC championship. So that's that's a given. After that, it's pretty much a coin flip as to who number two is. Because you can make a case for five different teams. Probably more so four, but I would include Michigan as the fifth team, largely because Michigan's undefeated. And they're ranked sixth in the AP polls. So I think you have to have Michigan in that conversation. Although I would argue they haven't really beaten anybody. So they're probably on the outside of that talk. But it's really around four teams. Cincinnati, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Ohio State. You look at this last week, and both Cincinnati and Oklahoma had scares of their own. Cincinnati went up against Navy. It was a game in which... Cincinnati was never in trouble of losing, but it was an ugly game. The Bearcats won 27-20. Um, Navy made it close, recovered an onside kick. But the Bearcats did have control of that game. Like, I've seen people overreact, oh, Cincinnati couldn't blow out Navy. Cincinnati did lead 27-10 late in the third quarter. So the Bearcats were never in danger of losing this game, so I can't ding them that much. And they weren't, like Luke Fickle had said after the game, they weren't exactly ever tested this season. So to get that test, maybe that does some good things for them. So Cincinnati, I'm fine with leading to get number two. I'm not dinging him at all, even though Navy only has one win. So that's okay. The other team that I was starting to buy in on, and now I'm still fading again, is Oklahoma, who looked awful against Kansas. They looked like they thought Kansas was going to be a pushover. They thought they could just walk in there and win 63-7. to seven. Kansas goes out there, takes a, a 17-7 lead midway through the third quarter, late third quarter, and you thought Kansas had it in the bag. And then Oklahoma Caleb Williams woke up. Where there was the fourth and three magical play where he gets a touchdown. Uh, runs it in from about 40 yards out. And then the weird fourth down play where it looks like Kennedy Brooks has stopped behind the line of scrimmage. And then Williams comes and rips the ball away from him and gets a first down. Because if Oklahoma doesn't get that, Kansas has the ball. Down five at the OU 42-yard line. They're probably going to score. His Oklahoma's defense isn't very good. And I don't know what the rule is. I guess it's because Brooks is behind the line of scrimmage. I don't know why the whistle isn't blown because Brooks has pushed two yards behind the line of scrimmage that the forward progress had been stopped. I don't get it. I still think what William... They say it's a legal play. I've never really viewed it before as a legal play, but hey, I'm not going to argue with the ref on that decision. But it just goes to show you Oklahoma has only really blown out two teams this season. TCU and Western Carolina. Every other game, it's a, either a game that Oklahoma is struggling to stop the other opponent, or it's a slug or it's basically a game that's ugly. And you give Oklahoma credit. Lincoln Riley's team has found ways to win. They're making plays late in games to seal off victories, to come back against Texas. And I think when you look at OU, I'm still not sold that they're a playoff team. Because if you're a playoff team, you go into Kansas, you blow out Kansas. They didn't do that. And you're saying, you might say, oh, Ricky, you have a lower standard on Cincinnati. Cincinnati at least had more control this game over Navy than Oklahoma did over Kansas. So I no way would I ever rank OU over Cincinnati in any ranking. But you look at OU schedule down the stretch, and I get the feeling they're going to lose at least once. They do have Texas Tech this week, but Texas Tech fired their head coach, Matt Wells, so I don't think Oklahoma's going to lose that game at home in Norman. At Baylor, though, on the 13th, home to Iowa State, who's peaking at the right time, just beat Oklahoma State last week at the 20th, and then the Bedlam game at Oklahoma State, and then your Big 12 championship game, which would right now be against Oklahoma State again. Probably I would say it's going to be Baylor or Iowa State that Oklahoma plays again in the Big 12 championship. Remember, it's top two teams play. It's not divisions. But with the way that OU's schedule is so stacked, I don't think they're going to get through this undefeated unless their defense plays better. They can't just rely on Caleb Williams to create magic every week as, as talented as he is. Uh, so I think Oklahoma is going to fall short at some point. Then you get to Ohio State. And I've seen people talk of great Ohio State is with CJ Stroud playing well, Trayvon Henderson in the backfield, Chris Olave, Garrett Mitchell. They've got great wide receivers. Here's my problem with Ohio State. Who they played. Since the Oregon loss, they played Tulsa, Akron, Rutgers, Maryland, Indiana. None of those teams are any good. You can give Ohio State credit. They've dominated them. They wiped the floor with them. I get it. I'm not going to sit here and argue against you why you shouldn't give them credit for it. But is it enough to make Ohio State the number two team in the country when the one team they played that's ranked they lost at home to one loss Oregon? I'm not saying rank Oregon ahead of Ohio State just yet, but I would pump the brakes on Ohio State. Let's see how they look beginning this week against Penn State, even though Penn State's coming in limping into this game. How do they look in a game that they're expected to win? Vegas has them favored by 18 and a half. How do they look in two weeks against Purdue? How do they look against Michigan State and how do they look against Michigan? Those are going to be the games that tell us how good is Ohio State. So, I think that when you look at this playoff picture, you know where Georgia is. I think you kind of know where Alabama is. Alabama being the number, really, with their own loss being to Texas, Texas A&M. Bama has at least played a decent team in Tennessee, struggled a little bit, found a way to win, crushed Mississippi State. I don't think we're gonna find out that much more about Alabama until their game with Auburn at the end of the season. So Alabama's, I think, in in a, in a good position. But the playoff is a little bit still tricky. Like it's gonna play itself out. And I think that's the fun part when we get these standings Tuesday. What are they gonna look like? How are teams stacked up? Like where is Saturday's Michigan Michigan State winner gonna be? And we're gonna on Saturday's show, Sam Sklar, who covers Michigan State football for the state news. Michigan State's new newspaper will join the show. Uh, he'll help us preview that game. We recorded that interview earlier today. Um, how does that picture shake out? Uh, you also have Wake Forest, who's number 16 in the, who's number 13 in the country. Uh, blew out Army, but I am blow them out. They scored 70, gave up 56. What, where is Wake in these standings? They played Duke this week. They should win that game. So where would the committee rank the Demon Deacons? Uh, where would the committee rank Old Miss, who right now is at number 10 in the rankings at Auburn? Does Ole Miss still have a path. Um, where does Notre Dame get ranked? Notre Dame is the fun team right now because Notre Dame's number eleven, and people look at Notre Dame like they only had like they have like three losses. They only have one loss, and it's the number two team in the country. If the Irish win out, and that would require beating North Carolina this week, which North Carolina is not what we thought they were going to be in the preseason. Being Navy, Virginia's a tougher game. That game's on the road in Charlottesville. Virginia six and two. Georgia Tech at home—it's just a win, definitely a win—and then at Stanford, Stanford beat Oregon, so you can't dismiss that game. If Notre Dame goes eleven and one, and their only loss is to Cincinnati, if Cincinnati is undefeated, it's hard to take out Notre Dame either. They would have a win over a ranked Wisconsin at the time, would have a win over Purdue, would have a win over Virginia Tech, would have a win over Virginia. It's not the greatest resume, but Notre Dame is not out by any means necessary. So got to keep an eye on the Irish going forward. But this is still a fun ranking. And you got to keep an eye on Oregon, who, thanks to the help of Travis Dye, uh, went into UCLA. They were the road underdogs. I don't know why, but Dye had four touchdowns. Oregon plays an ugly style of football, but they find a way to win it as well. Merrick Cristobal deserves a lot of credit. Anthony Brown on the ground was key, a quarterback. And Oregon does have a couple of tough games at the end of the season. They go to Utah. They go to host Oregon State, which is a good game. The Civil War and the Beavers are actually good. But as long as Oregon's in that top five or in the in that top ten mix, eventually that head-to-head with Ohio State's going to stand out. So if you're Oregon, just keep winning. If Ohio State slips up once, obviously you get ahead of them. But if Oregon can dominate over the next five games, then Oregon's resume gets a little bit better, a little bit. Remember that win over Fresno State actually looked good for them too, considering Fresno State's beating UCLA this year. So. I wouldn't exactly count out Oregon just yet because that was a good win in passing unit for them. The other crazy story of the week was of course, the game in happy Valley, Penn state loses to Illinois 20 to 18, nine overtimes. This game was ugly. It basically was the picture of big 10 football. Uh, but you got the new rule in college football. Whereas when you get to the third overtime, you just exchange two point conversion attempts. I hate it. I think it's stupid. Um, uh, I would rather you just play out the overtime. And I get we're looking out for the safety of the athletes, and I I understand all that. But why do I want to keep watching teams go for two every single play? I don't mind if it's after a touchdown you go for two. I actually like that idea when they used to have it that way. Why are we changing these rules for where a bunch of overtimes are just watching plays galore from the two-yard line? can only do so many two-point conversion plays where you eventually have to empty the playbook. That game... And honestly, nobody really deserved to win. I I know Illinois got a great game from its running back, Chase Brown, 223 yards and a touchdown on 33 carries. Their quarterback threw for 38 yards, albeit he got hurt in this game. Sean Clifford wasn't healthy. We'll see how healthy he is against Ohio State. But it was unique to see, hey, this game actually went to nine OTs, and I looked at the score, and I'm like, wait, nine overtimes? And I was like, oh, yeah, the new rule's in place. I miss the old rule. I actually do like college overtime where I like NFL overtime. I like NFL overtime now because a field goal doesn't necessarily win the game. I hated the old way where all you do is go 30 yards in overtime, win the coin toss, and you win the game. I like that both teams, for the most part, have to play both offense and defense, which is why I like college now. Would you? I would probably change it where instead of starting from the 25, the opponent's 25, I would start from maybe the 40 or midfield to where a field goal isn't a given, although – college football. Field goals are never a given. But I don't like the new rule at all. I, I would change it. I would change it back. Uh, I, and I don't really think Illinois-Penn State nine overtimes is exactly what's great about college football, but hey, uh, that's where we're at. So, when we do our top five this week, here are the games we're looking at. Obviously, Michigan-Michigan State, which we'll will profile on our student section showdown game. Uh, Texas at Baylor is a good game. Georgia at Florida in the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Florida's not that great. Georgia, obviously, we know how good they are. Um, Old Miss at Auburn, which is going to be fun. If you want a weird game in the American, SMU at Houston. Remember, Houston's only loss this season was to Texas Tech in the opening game. They've won six in a row. SMU trying to get up in the rankings at number 19, their last chance for the committee's first rankings. Uh, Notre Dame at North Carolina, the battle between Sam Howell and that Notre Dame defense will be a fun matchup. And sneaky good games and the late at window. Uh, 10-15 Eastern, Virginia at BYU. BYU back in the top 25, but Bronco Mendenhall, former BYU head coach. And you look at Virginia. Brennan Armstrong, 23 touchdowns, 6 interceptions. Virginia has two losses this season. One to North Carolina by 20, and the other one they lost to Wake Forest. So Virginia... Very quietly, they've got two losses. They still play Notre Dame. They still play Pitt. Virginia has a a tough schedule coming up, but if they can win here, it could be a good jump start for them. And in the Mountain West, San Diego State and that tough run defense that beat Air Force last week against Jake Hayner and the Fresno State Bulldogs. Hayner 22 touchdowns, six picks. Uh, He is, after throwing four picks in the loss to Hawaii, he has not thrown a pick in the last two games. He has thrown a total of 12 touchdowns in the last four games. So it's Fresno State's offense against San Diego State's defense, 10.30 Eastern on CBS Sports Network. So those are some fun games that will rank our top five coming up next show, and we'll preview Michigan, Michigan Michigan State. Coming up next, it's World Series talk. Braves, Astros, two games in the books. What exactly to take away from it, and how does the series look from here? You're listening to Kickin' with Keo here on Full Press Radio. We'll be right back after this.
0: plus
2: moving our attention to the fall classic day off of course during the world series two games are in the books ricky keeler here with you to talk about the astros and the braves and this series tied at a game of peace game three tomorrow night friday night eight o'clock eastern 809 specifically um luis garcia against ian anderson we will dive into that pitching matchup a little bit later in the segment but i want to first talk about the first two games of the series and um, what exactly to take away, and, and who's exactly got the edge. Because we didn't really get a chance to make a pick in this series uh, because the last time we recorded was before Game 6 of Braves-Dodgers, which the Braves did win. And I'll say right from the gate, Fox did have the second lowest rating for a Game 1 World Series um, since Giants-Royals. And I would say it's not surprising because the game has become more regional. I mean, Rob Manfred has even admitted it as such. And I'm not going to lie, as much as, I, as much as I'm sure there are a lot of fans out there that hate the Astros and don't want them to win, I think there's just more buzz if the Dodgers have beaten the Braves. I think people wanted the Astros-Dodgers revenge series. They wanted the bad blood. They wanted the storylines and all that stuff. And you get the Braves, who are, are a fun story. I, I love watching the Braves. My buddy Wayne Cavati, who's a huge Braves fan, I, I know he's very happy right now, and he's watching these games, and he's enjoying it, and... But there's some sizzle that was taken out of it. Whether you think that's fair or not, um, that's really where this series is at, essentially. But it's been entertaining, all, all things considering. And you look at Atlanta in Game 1. You had the Braves get out to a 5-0 lead early on in that game. Jorge Soler with the home run in the first inning to lead it off. The first lead-off home run in a World Series game. Um, that was pretty huge, especially in the Game 1. Get the, get the scoring started against Romber Valdez, Austin Riley, then the RBI double. You had the feeler's choice in the second inning by Soler. then the two-run homer by Duvall in the third that gets Valdez out of the game. And Atlanta just finds a way to get victories, plain and simple. And I think you look at this game, and the Astros might have lost the battle, but they might have helped themselves win the war. And the reason was Charlie Morton's dealing in this game and then takes a comebacker off the leg ends up breaking his fibula. He's now out for the rest of this World Series. And Morton was dealing. Two and a third, one hit, walk two, struck out three. And now you look at the Braves pitching situation. It's not exactly great. You already know game four. You're looking at probably a, a bullpenning kind of game with the Noah and Smiley and all those guys. So now what do you do for game five? Are you pitching Max Freed on short rest? It didn't look great last night. We'll talk about Freed in a little bit. So Atlanta's pitching situation now kind of evens out to where Houston is. And when you looked at the series going in, it was the Braves that had the advantage in starting rotation. Doesn't feel that way now. But Atlanta's offense is always a key. And you look at Atlanta's bullpen in game one. A.J. Minter, who had not thrown who threw the most pitches he's ever thrown in a game this season in game one, 43 pitches, 30 strikes. Two and two-thirds, gave up a run on three hits, but he did strike out three. Minter was the hero of this game because he helped keep Atlanta in front and kept Houston from gaining any momentum. Uh, Luke Jackson gives up a hit, strikes out three, of inning of and two-thirds. Tyron Matzik did a good job, and Will Smith, a scoreless ninth inning because Houston had their chances. And the Astros were one for nine with men, scoring position, and... It was. It wasn't as if the Astros were having bad at bats. The Braves infield, when you look at Albie's, when you look at Swanson, Freeman, they're a good defensive infield. Like they make plays, and they were making the routine plays. They were making even the trick, the tough plays in, in key situations. And John Smoltz and Joe Buck were talking about it before Game One. The key was going to be which infield had the better series, because both these teams are so talented in the infield. When you look at Atlanta with Riley, Swanson, Albies, and Freeman, and then Houston with Gurriel, Bregman, Correa, Altuve. Like, there is so much talent in those infields. Whichever one plays better is going to win the series. Outfield's kind of a push. I mean, you got Brantley and Tucker for Houston, but Atlanta's outfield with Peterson and Duvall and Soler, like like, their guys have contributed since July and have done a really nice job. So you can't really blame Atlanta. Like, I think the infields, again are a huge key. But if you look at the Astros game one. I don't blame them for not exactly coming to the party. But you look at the Houston offense in game two, completely changed, and it was mainly from that second inning. They get the five runs in the second four five get five runs in the first two innings off of Max Freed. Freed last does go five innings, which they needed six runs, seven hits, struck out six, walked the batter. But again, that four-run second inning did uh, freed in, and largely it was because of small ball. An RBI single by Jose Siri, an RBI single by Martín Maldonado, a scored a pair of runs, and then Michael Brantley, who's been great this series and great all postseason with an RBI single of his own. He did have the Altuve home run late in the game, which is his 22nd of his career in the postseason, which is amazing he's hit that many home runs. But it was ma- mainly all small stuff against Freed, and then Jose Urquidy... Remember, he was clutch against the Nationals in the World Series two years ago. Came out and pitched well. Five innings, two runs, six hits, and he struck out seven without walking anybody on 74 pitches. So, Urquidy helped kind of keep everything in good position for the Astros because I don't think they have to dominate pitching-wise. They just can't blow it. Because you look at Houston, they have seven wins this year in the playoffs by five or more runs. Now, that stat is skewed. Largely because you go back, one of those games is Game Four against the Red Sox, where a two-one game turned into nine-two. Like that's not going to happen all the time. But what have we talked about the Astros all postseason? You got to get ahead of them early. You can't let them get out to a two-three nothing lead because then it's over. Because the, the offense will just keep piling on and on and on. That's how deep they are. From about one to seven in the order. They're deep. Now, center field, a little tricky. They'll use McCormick. They'll use Siri. They'll use Maldonado behind the plate. Those are outs you can get if you're a pitching staff, but that 1-7 through seven stuff. Now, Atlanta, they've got a, not a lot of tough outs in the lineup either. I mean, Travis Darnot, catching position's interesting, although Darno did Homer in game two. Maybe the easier of the outs in the lineup, but their lineup is tough to get out as well. And I think it's what makes for an entertaining series because the bullpens are tricky with both these teams. Houston does have Graveman and Presley, but Atlanta's bullpen's been clutch in the playoffs too, which was considered a weakness when they started the postseason. But you still have that problem with the sport. And the problem with the sport is you don't have guys that can go five innings on a consistent basis, where five innings has become the new eight innings for pitchers. And that's a problem. If you if you want to look at the viewing enjoyment of the sport, and I think that's fair to look at it, Where guys only going three innings. And it's not fair because again. Keep in mind Morton broke his fibula really. He's probably going five six innings. If that doesn't happen. But you have game one. Took four hours plus. For a 6-2 game. That shouldn't happen. The pace of the game might be fine. But. I mean what's going on from here. Who knows. And I still think we need pitchers to go deeper into games. Again, that's not going to change. Look, you can complain about the sport all you want. You see broadcasters complain about the sport. It's not changing. The analytics have taken over the game as you know it. That's just the case. But to say I was exactly entertained with a four-hour long game that ended 6-2 where most of the action occurred in the first three innings, nah, I wasn't that entertained to be honest. I'm not even talking, I wouldn't even go with changing the amount of pitchers you could use, or whatever. Maybe the commercials are too long. I mean that's also possible. So there's other ways. Uh but this series I think has been okay. Uh I don't think it has the same drama. Again, if it was Astros Dodgers, I think it would be more drama filled. I think people hate the Astros. But they're not they don't love the Braves, if that makes any sense. So we look at Game 3, that's tomorrow night on Fox, Luis Garcia against Ian Anderson. Ian Anderson, over the last two years, has been very consistent in the playoffs. The Braves are undefeated at home. So you have to like their chances here. Anderson could have gone deeper in, against game, the Dodgers in Game 6, but they needed a pinch hitter in that situation. Now I remember pinch hitters come into play as you go to the National League Park. But I think Ian Anderson can go deep in the game if they need him to. The X factor here is on the Astros' side with Luis Garcia. Garcia pitched game six against the Red Sox. The fastball looked a lot sharper. It looked like he had more complete his pitches compared to the first two games in this series, or in this postseason for him against the White Sox and against the Red Sox, where he was awful. It looked like he couldn't handle the moment. And remember, this is still a rookie. Getting the ball in the biggest game of his life. How does he handle it? You kind of know how Ian Anderson's going to handle it, albeit it is his first World Series game. But the guy's been cool as a cucumber in the postseason. Go back to last year, look at this postseason, the guy's money. So Anderson all of a sudden becomes the big swing pitcher here because whoever wins this game doesn't have to stress out their bullpen as much in game four. Remember game four, remember Houston used Granky and then used a bunch of relievers against Boston. Atlanta's probably going to use a bunch of relievers as well. So whichever starter can go deeper in this game takes the stress off their bullpen for game four where they're going to need everybody. And game five for the Braves, they might need everybody unless they're going to take the gamble and start Freed on short rest. Because now things get really, really interesting. You take Morton out. Houston's kind of got the edge. And Altuve may be starting to wake up. Bregman, we'll see what he can do. We know Correa's history in the playoffs. I think right now this series is swung in Houston's favor. I think the Astros are going to win this series. I'm rooting for the Braves. Although, there are two reasons you would root for Houston in this series. One, to see Dusty Baker win a trophy. Two, to watch Rob Manfred awkwardly hand the trophy to the Houston Astros. So... You look at this series in both angles, again, game three, I think, is the swing game. We'll talk more about it on the Saturday show before game four. But keep an eye on Garcia and Anderson, which pitcher lasts the longest in this game, and which pitcher can take let take a lot of the stress out of their bullpen and let them carry it over into Saturday. Braves got helped last night in that using a lot five things out of freed and having that game via blowout, they didn't have to use their big relievers like they did in game one. So Atlanta's bullpen might be in the better shape, but we'll see after Game 3 how each of these bullpens look going into Game 4 because in this day and age of baseball, the bullpens are always going to be key. So we'll take one more break. We'll wrap it up with disturbing news in the NHL, and we'll look ahead to a couple of key games in the NBA for this weekend as well. You're listening to Kicking with Keeler here on Full Press Radio. We'll wrap up Episode 108 after this.
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. Chumbacasino.com. Number no by mall. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Wrapping up, kicking with Q, episode 108 here on Full Press Radio with the sad story of what's happened with the Chicago Blackhawks and especially with Kyle Beach. Uh, As we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, he came out on Wednesday, identified himself as the John Doe in the um, report that he was sexually assaulted by the video coach of the Blackhawks at the time, Brad Aldrich, back in 2010. And you read this report that just was released and it's disturbing on many fronts. Uh, some of it is tough to read. Uh, it makes you sick. And what makes you more sick is the people that reportedly knew about it. The coach at the time, Joel Quinville. The assistant GM, Kevin Shovel, Shovel um Stan Bowman, who was the uh, GM with GM the Blackhawks, who now resigned. Uh, senior Director of Hockey Administration, Al McIsaac. Uh, you had uh, Jim Gary who was the mental skills coach and team counselor at the time uh, the senior vice president Jay Blunk. there's so many people Donald Fear the head of the Players Association to know about it and to not do more with it is disappointing and you read through this report and a lot of it is about oh we don't want the distraction On a team trying to win the Stanley Cup. And it's okay, then what exact like when did big winning a trophy come come before the health of an of an athlete? Come before the need of an athlete who's coming to you saying, This guy is doing something wrong to me. And why is that still happening in twenty twenty one? Why is it still happening in twenty why is it happening ever? The failure of so many people in that administration with Chicago, with the NHL, is sickening. Because you look at they got fined two million dollars by Commissioner Bettman. Where is why is it not more than that? Why isn't this this video coach, Brad Aldrich, why isn't it his name off the Stanley Cup trophy? Like, where, where is the actual punishment besides money? Okay? Because I don't blame Kyle Beecher being upset that nobody had his back, and that he's watching, back then in 2010, Aldrich carry around the trophy, and it made it, made him feel that he did something wrong. Like, that's not right either. So, The fact that nobody really stuck up for him, and I I applaud him for having the courage to come out and say that he is the John Doe in, in the lawsuit, and he is willing to be open with everything and realize that even though he didn't come forward originally, that now he can be a voice for so many people. Like That's the important thing in all this, is that you have more people that have these crimes done to them be willing to come forth and say yo th- that or listen this guy's do this person is doing wrong to me this person is assault- sexually assaulting me they're violating me and they need to be stopped and somebody an upper leadership needs to do something and I don't understand as we're recording this at four o'clock on a Thursday why Joe Quinville who's now the coach of the Panthers why he was allowed to coach Wednesday night why didn't the Panthers say, listen, you're meeting with the commissioner tomorrow. You're not coaching tonight. We're not firing you tonight. You're not coaching. Why is the, the, the GM, Shevelday, Sheveldayoff, who's in Winnipeg. Um, why is it that he still gets to be the GM until he meets next week? So just everybody around the NHL. Has a question mark around them right now. I think it's fair because it seems these brands try to cover up for the good of their, good of the, good of the team, good of the league. The cover up is always worse than the crime. Didn't we learn this with Penn State, with Baylor, with Michigan State, with all these institutions that tried to cover things up? It always comes back to bite you. When that happens, how about looking out for the individual, not the institution? Look out for the name on the back of the jersey, not for the logo or the university or whatever, the team logo on the front. Because if you're a Blackhawks fan, again, we're trying to get somebody who covers the Blackhawks on to talk more about this on Saturday because I want their perspective. And uh, one of the people I'll give credit for and I've been listening to who does a fantastic job is uh, Jack Bushman. He hosts Locked on Blackhawks. And we're trying to get him on the show. And one of the things that you look at is, hell, if you're a Blackhawks fan, you're sick right now. Because how do you trust the team you root for? Not only have they been awful on the ice so far this year, what they do away from the ice is even worse. To think they put a Stanley Cup final over an athlete's well-being is so sickening. You just can't un- you can't understand it. You can't understand it. it, it, it if you read the report, and I've tried to read the support, it makes you sick to your stomach. It makes you makes you sad. It makes you want to cry. It Makes you want to do so many things. You watch the interview that Beach did, and you feel for him. You really do. Because nobody deserves that to happen to them. Nobody. And I can understand if you're a Blackhawk fan, you're upset with your team right now and you have every right to be. And you should be. And you want more action. The NHL looks awful in all this. And it's going to take a long time before they're trusted to fix it again. But we're going we're gonna to try to get somebody on the show uh, Saturday, talk about it a little bit more. Uh, but very quickly, um, tonight in the NBA, big game, Knicks against the Bulls. It's not on TNT, it's an NBA TV game if you're not in New York or Chicago. Knicks are off to a 3 1 start, Bulls are 4 0. Uh, I think this should be a real interesting game. Uh, we'll talk about it more hopefully on the Saturday show, but I think it's going to be, um, two teams that are, um, Two teams between the Knicks and the, the Bulls that could, with the East, with Brooklyn struggling and Philly struggling, both these teams have a chance at least get off to a great start. Then you have Golden State tonight against Memphis. Memphis, the tough loss to the Lakers the other day. And the Warriors off to a good 4-0 start. Can they go to 5-0? Uh, so coming up Saturday, we will be talking more NFL. Week preview in Week 8. We'll recap Packers-Cardinals. We'll do Word Association, top five games. College football, top five games. We'll preview Michigan, Michigan State with Sam Sklar from the State News. Uh, we will do a wrap-up of Game 3 of the World Series, and hopefully we'll have um, somebody on to talk more about this Blackhawk situation. Uh, reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at RickNader555. It's at R I C K letter I, Nader, like Terminator, and three fives. W- you can follow us on Twitter at coverage at radio. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Get your podcast. Just search King with Keyword. Chances are you will find us. Please leave a rating. I want to hear from you. Tell me what you like, what you don't like. You can email me, rickjkeeler at gmail.com. Or you be sure to download the Full Press Coverage app on your iOS or Android device. It is free. All of our articles are there. All of our podcasts are there. Uh, live shows, you can make sure to check that out. Uh, so from all of us here at Full Press Coverage, I'm Ricky Keillor saying thanks for kicking it with me on this Thursday afternoon. Enjoy Packers Cardinals tonight. And we'll see you back here for another Football Saturday, episode 109, coming at you Saturday morning. Until then, enjoy everybody.
1: With Lucky Lands Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere.